fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. Then David and all the men with him took, their, took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted all evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It, was, it is written in the book of Jeshar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. We are continuing in our study of the life of David, the great king of Israel in the Old Testament. And we're moving along in this story week by week, and here we are at this great juncture. And let's pray before we take a look at this passage. Let's pray together. Jesus, we have great hope because you're alive. You were dead, but then you came to life. And you continue to be alive, and you're present here and now. We pray that you would send your spirit to open our hearts, to help this word have impact in our lives. Uh, we pray that you would give our minds understanding, our hearts receptivity to you, God, and give our hands the will to obey. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The images in my mind are a little bit grainy, but I can still see them. Our front yard is 
covered in snow, glorious snowman makeable snow. My two older sisters, about four and six years old, are hurrying to join my dad outside. They're gleefully putting on their coats, their hats, and their gloves, and their boots, but I, I am not. I'm in my mother's arms, dressed still in my pajamas, which is not at all where I want to be or how I want to be dressed with all that snow, glorious snow, outside. I suppose my mom made the right call that one cold day, keeping her two-year-old son indoors. But I can still see the blurry image of my sisters now trudging through the snow as I gaze through the window, through my tears, as I sob and sob and sob. Now, nobody in my family believes me when I share that story. They say I was just too young, far too young, to have remembered that. Do you believe me? Aren't you my friends, right? Maybe I was too young, but I still count that story as my earliest childhood memory. It's also my earliest memory of crying. My earliest memory of disappointment, of grief. What's your earliest memory of crying? Do you know? Of course, grief is more than just shedding tears. And it's also true that not all of us mourn our losses in the same way. Maybe this is the better question for us. What in your life have been the most impactful moments of grief? Three days after the victory over the Amalekites, the successful rescue mission that we looked at last week, David heard some terrible news. King Saul and his three sons were in battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. The fighting was fierce. And as we're told in verse 2, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. Eventually, they got to his three sons, Abinadab, Malkishua, and Jonathan. Saul himself was badly wounded by the archers. Then, rather than be tortured and finished off by his enemies, we're told in verse 4 that Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Suddenly, tragically, Saul, king's, uh, David's king and David's nemesis, and Jonathan, David's best friend, were dead. How does David respond? David grieves. In verse 11, we're told that David and all his men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. This was, of course, an ancient cultural form of expressing sorrow. But it was a visible expression, wasn't it? We have a habit of privatizing our sorrows, our sadness, they didn't hide. They went public 
with their sadness. And in verse 12, it also says, They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. The ancient word translated mourned carries the image of beating one's breast. David and his men were surely demonstrative in their grief. And the root of that word translated wept means flowing with drops, obviously referring to the many tears that they shed. David grieved hard. David grieved loud. David grieved long. What we find in this passage is an extraordinary example of the spiritual practice of grieving. Did you even know that grieving is an essential part of biblical spirituality. In fact, there's a lot we don't know or don't understand about grief, which is why this passage is such a gift to us. It teaches us three things, among many other things, three things about grief. The challenge of grief, the necessity of grief, and lastly, the practice of grief. We'll look at the challenge of grief, the necessity of grief, and then thirdly, the practice of grieving. First, the challenge of grieving. It's hard. In the broken world in which we live, we experience losses of all kinds all the time. We lose loved ones to the tragic power of death. But there's also this. As we ourselves head towards the inevitability of death, we lose our youth in the process of aging. In times of transition, we lose a sense of stability when we move to a new apartment or to a new city. We're shaken when we lose a job or when we lose hours of work when our computer suddenly goes blank. When our children grow up, we lose a sense of control over them, and we're rattled when we lose trust in a close friend who betrays us. There are so many different ways that we experience loss and disappointment and even death. And we must take the time to process our losses, even the ones that aren't big and cataclysmic, the ordinary losses, the daily losses, but let's be honest, grieving well is really hard. Surely grieving the loss of Jonathan was difficult for David because of its intensity. Jonathan was David's best friend. They shared a unique bond, a, a, even a sworn, promised friendship, a covenantal friendship. And we hear the intensity of David's sorrow in verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. You were wonderful to me, even more wonderful than the love of women. Grieving the death of Saul was difficult too, but for different reasons. You know, David's relationship with Saul was impossibly complicated. In fact, it's stunning to see David express so much sorrow for him. Like in verse 24, daughters of Israel weep for Saul. Or verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired. Really? Really? 
Jonathan, of course. But Saul, Saul threw spears at David. Saul hunted David down to kill him, forcing David to run like a fugitive for years. Saul made David's life hell. You'd almost expect David to, to do what I probably would have done, maybe what you would have done upon hearing the news of Saul's death. Rejoice, celebrate, breathe a sigh of relief. But David didn't because Saul was also David's father-in-law. Saul was David's guardian for many years. For many years, David lived in Saul's palace, his home. Most of all, as long as he was alive, Saul was the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed. So David would honor him. He was committed to honoring Saul, his enemy. Amazingly, David focuses here on the evidence of God's grace in Saul's life, not the evidence of Saul's hate in David's life. It's a clear example of how grieving our losses is often messy and hard and complicated. And so we avoid it, don't we? We avoid grief and for a whole host of reasons. We secretly believe that sadness is weakness, or so we're taught. Even when we're devastated, we, we wear a mask of toughness. We tell ourselves that we don't have time, we don't have energy to grieve our losses. Or even when we have time and plenty of energy, we argue, but what good will it do? Sometimes it's fear of losing control because grief can hit us like powerful waves on a stormy sea. What if you start and you just can't stop grieving? So you give yourself a little bit of permission to grieve, maybe, but not for too long, not too ugly, and not too much. Isn't this what we do? We lose a friend or we lose a dream, and we numb the pain by minimizing the loss, telling ourselves it wasn't that bad. It's okay, you've got other friends. Or maybe by blaming other people. This wouldn't have happened if he hadn't screwed up. Or blaming yourself. It's all my fault. Or by intellectualizing our grief and pain, analyzing it to avoid difficult feelings. Or by distracting ourselves with endless hours of Netflix or whatever. Or by medicating ourselves with pornography or overeating or pills or overworking. Or even by over-spiritualizing the pain. Come on, let go and let God rejoice in the Lord always. What are ways, friends, that you typically avoid grief? You know, we, we've been taught to be strong, to stop crying, to get over it. The Bible says no such thing. But because of this, most of us have this trail of sorrows in our stories that we've just avoided. Oh, maybe today can be the beginning of a turning point for you. What's the hurt or the loss you've never gotten a chance to grieve? 
David's grief was complicated, just like yours, just like mine, but he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't numb it because we must grieve our losses, big and small. We must turn our face towards our devastations and our disappointments. David understood this. He not only faces the challenge of grieving, he understood, secondly, the necessity of grieving. The necessity of grieving. David puts words to sorrow. He wrote a poem, a song. Verse 17, we're told David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. A lament is a biblical song of mourning. It's given to us in verses 19 through 27. David uses all his creative ability to express his overwhelming pain with words and music. And then what does David do? In verse 18, we're told, and then he ordered, he ordered that all the people of Judah be taught this lament. He orders that others weep. In love, he commands it. Why? Because David knows that in the face of loss, grief and lament for the healthy individual are not optional. Why? First of all, when we fail to grieve, we let our pain have power over us. Author and theologian Eugene Peterson offers this helpful insight about grief and lament. He says, if we're not taught to lament, we'll grow up believing that our immediate feelings determine our fate. We'll deny every rejection and thereby be controlled by rejection. We'll avoid our pain and thereby be controlled by our pain. A few years ago, I had this huge fight with a member of my extended family. And it was bad enough, painful enough, that it really did feel like our relationship had changed forever. Just one of those moments of conflict. It almost felt like I had lost something in that relationship. There was a loss there. But I had not really grieved that loss. And so what I found was I later noticed that I had become controlled by that sadness. And I even became controlled by that sadness that turned into resentment. I couldn't even relate to that person without that incident dominating my thoughts, defining our relationship. You see, because without grieving well, our pain begins to have power over us. But secondly, grieving is necessary because when we refuse to grieve, we begin to leak our unprocessed emotions. In his book, Emotional Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro makes this observation, when we do not process before God the very feelings that make us human, such as sadness, we leak. And our churches are filled with leaking Christians who have not honestly dealt with our true emotions. Years ago, I, I knew a person who was always a little bit testy, a little bit bitter, a little bit angry. And I later learned that they had been wounded deeply in their past. 
They'd been wounded deeply, but they had never really grieved that trauma, had never worked through it, never processed it. So this person, every day in every interaction, it seems, was leaking grief, but in the form of anger. Third, when we don't grieve, we diminish our souls. Again, Eugene Peterson is helpful here. He says, the result of denying and minimizing our wounds over many years is that we become less and less human, empty Christian shells with painted, smiley faces. Do you ever see that? Do you ever feel that way about yourself? It's because apart from grieving well, we become diminished people because we are dulled to reality, even broken reality. We become numbed to life itself. We become unresponsive, not just to painful reality, but in due time to all of reality. You refused to cry but now you no longer know how to laugh either. You refuse to look at pain, but now you don't know how to look at people who are filled with pain. Listen to Peterson again. Pain isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. Grieving well brings us back into contact with what is actual. Actual people, actual lives, actual pain, actual joys, and actual God. When we learn to grieve well, we come alive again. Do you want to be alive? Grieving well makes you a more full human being. Our souls are enlarged, are expanded, stretched. And we become more attentive to what God is doing in our lives and in our world, including what he's doing through our pain. And then in the process, we become more attentive to other people's grief. We can connect with them and love them and comfort them. It might sound odd and maybe even intimidating for some of us. But to live fully, you must face death fully. To laugh truly, you must be able to weep truly. To love fully, you must embrace loss fully. And so it shouldn't surprise us to find how much attention the Bible actually gives to the practice of grief. Two-thirds of the psalms, the prayers and songs of faith in the Old Testament, two-thirds are laments, these songs of mourning. There's an entire book in the Old Testament written by the prophet Jeremiah called the Book of Lamentations. Jesus himself is shown to be weeping at the grave of one of his best friends, Lazarus, in John 11. And that was when he even knew in a few minutes he would raise him from the dead. 
And yet Jesus, even with that hope, had freedom to grieve. He cried over his people in Jerusalem in Luke 19. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, the apostle Paul invites Christians to grieve the devastation of death, but not without hope in Christ. I mean, God, through his inspired, authoritative word, is teaching us how to weep well. So how do we do it? How can we weep and grieve well? Let's look at our third and final point briefly, the practice of grieving. The practice of grieving. How do we turn toward our experiences of loss rather than running from it? This passage gives us four simple practices. Number one, honesty. Honesty. David wept and mourned visibly and passionately. Friends, you can be honest with yourself and with God about your grief. Tell God what you're really feeling. And know that you're safe with him. You can tell him anything. He's a God of all grace, all compassion, and all comfort. So maybe you're confused. Bring your confusion to God. Bring your questions to God. Maybe you're angry. That's all right. He can handle it. Bring that too. You can shout and scream. You can bring your true self, your real heart. God will not be surprised by your strong emotions. He will not be repulsed by your grief. In fact, he understands it deeply, even personally, Because the God of the Bible is the God who entered into our grief personally. He came into this world in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who was described by the prophet as a man of many sorrows. The Savior of the world wept often. And he suffered the ultimate form of loss. The loss of the Father's favor. Jesus bore the ultimate form of grief, the grief of judgment for our sin. Which means that you will never be condemned by God simply by coming with your grief. That you will never be defined by your grief in his sight. Because rather, if you're in Christ, you are defined by his love. You are defined by his kindness. You are defined by Jesus. You're in a safe place so you can bring anything. That's troubling your heart. And your Savior Jesus, the Lord of loss, will draw near to you. Will you draw near to him today with honesty? Secondly, honesty, poetry. Poetry. Look, one scholar calls David's lament that we have in the second half of this passage one of the finest specimens of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. Now, having told you that, unfortunately, we don't get to see why. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through every last aspect of this lament, this poem, going over all of its features. But there's wonderful wordplay and alliteration and rich imagery and rhythm and rhyme. You may have actually noticed in the first part of the poem, 
how it's written, David can, can almost barely bring himself to mention Saul and Jonathan's names at first. You know, kind of like a grieving person feels. I can't even say their name. And then eventually he names Saul. And then finally when he gets to his dear friend Jonathan, whom he loves in verse 25 and 26, he switches to the first person voice. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, speaking to him directly, almost as if Jonathan is before him face to face, kind of like a grieving person does. There's something, friends, about artistic expression. Through a, a poem or a song or a picture that has a unique way of helping us to express or even to discover difficult emotions. There's something about the beauty and creativity of this poetic lament that actually connects with deep places of the soul. Poetry does that. Art does that. Writing your grief. Reading your grief slows you down. It takes the pace of life down a notch or five. It forces you to pay attention. It invites you to turn words over and over in your heart to see if they fit your feelings. And so, in your loss, in your grief, you might write a poem, or maybe a song, or listen to a song, or draw a picture. You might pour yourself into cooking and the culinary arts, or it might be the experienced poetry of taking a walk through Rock Creek Park and experiencing the beauty of God's creation. But can we take cues from the way that God specially revealed poetry and art as a special vehicle through which he meets us in our grief? There's something there. Honesty, poetry, number three, community. Community in times of grief and loss, you know, I know, it's tempting to just suck inward, to go at it alone, to avoid the help of other people. Which is ironic, of course, because when you're mourning, that's usually when you're experiencing the greatest loneliness. But it's what we do. But do you notice how much David grieved in community? In verse 12, David mourned and wept and fasted together with his men. And then, as I pointed out before, after writing his lament, he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament. And it was even recorded in something called the Book of Jashar, which was a collection of Hebrew poems that commemorated all these great events in Israel's history. Listen, God doesn't expect you to grieve alone. Don't you dare try to do that. Let others into your sadness. Or you go and sit with someone in their sorrows. Process your losses together. And not only that, we need to teach each other how to take seriously these cadences of pain. 
In other words, we got to be a community here where we're not letting each other do that denying and numbing and medicating stuff that we so often do to keep away from grief. Can we be that sort of community to call each other into honest, poetic, hope-filled lament? In fact, as I've considered this, I'm convinced that when churches like ours go through a community-wide experience of disappointment or of loss, that we need to lament together. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but maybe it's something like a lament party. I don't know. You come up with the name. But gatherings for grief, a place where we can nibble on some cookies and talk about how it just stinks that that sad thing happened. And maybe talk about other things too and laugh and maybe pray and process together, but you're doing it together. You know, one of my regrets from last year is that after submitting a proposal to acquire the La Casa building in Mount Pleasant, a building that we began to dream as being a place that could just unleash all this potential for our neighborhood ministry, serving our neighbors, bringing our community together, even being a place where our office, our church staff could office. And then after we lost the bid to another group, a fantastic group, by the way, doing great work in the community, we just moved on. No real processing, one or two announcements, but for all that was invested in that process, for all the praying that had happened, for all the disappointment that I know a lot of people felt, I look back upon it and I say we needed a lament party. We needed to be called into each other's homes. We needed to do this together. Because grief is meant to be shared and extended in community. And lastly, honesty, poetry, community, hope. And I couldn't find a way to rhyme it. There it is, hope. What do we have before us but the Son of God? Because what's a greater loss than the loss of God's Son's own life? And what could be more grievous than the crucifixion of Christ? And yet, Jesus' death spelled our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins and joys forevermore. And that story of the gospel teaches us something really profound. And this is how Counselor Paul Tripp tells us about the lesson of the cross in the midst of our grief. And he says this, the brightest of good things can be found right in the middle of the darkest of bad things. God often brings the most lasting and wonderful things out of the darkest moments in our lives. That was true of the cross of Christ, the greatest grief of all. That can be true of our smaller, though no, no, not unintense, still terrifying and still terrible experiences of grief and, grief and loss today. Faith in Christ doesn't remove great grief, but it does allow us to grieve in a brand new way with the hope of the resurrection. Do you have hope Today, the hope of finding security in a God who is sovereign over all things, even our losses. 
so that none of your losses are ever ultimate or ultimately defining. The hope of Christ, Christ who was risen from the dead and who promises to redeem all our losses so that none of your crying is ever done in vain. Do you want to learn to grieve well? As someone has said, the quickest way to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west chasing after it, but to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. Will you turn towards the darkness, towards the loss? Because, dear grieving friend, here's good news. The sun is rising. The sun has risen indeed. Let's pray. And so give us grace to grieve well, Lord Jesus, because we need it and we need you. Grace to grieve. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.